Welcome to this week's sermon from Dale Partridge at Kingsway Bible Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit kingswaybible.org. So I'm actually excited to share with the congregation the wisdom of this passage of Scripture that I felt the Lord unearthed with me this week. One of my preaching professors, uh, Stephen Lawson, would tell me, our job is to go into the mountain and get the gold and bring it out to the congregation. And there are nuggets of gold in this passage of scripture, so I'm excited about that. All right, over the past few weeks, um, we have seen Paul doing what? Well, he's defending the gospel of grace uh, against the claims of antinomianism. We talked about that, it means anti-law. The, he's fighting this idea that free justification will somehow result in people freely sinning. He doesn't want people to think that just because you're justified freely means that you have license to essentially go live and sin freely. And that's essentially the accusation of, against the gospel of grace. You have all these Jews and Pharisees that are, you know, really set on obedience as the way to justification. And they're saying, well, if it's freely justified, if you're freely justified, what's going to keep you from just abusing that grace? Now, if I could phrase the distinctions around justification that Paul is attempting to make, I'd break them down into three sections. And this is very important. You might want to write this down. There's three categories. It's faith plus obedience is legalism right? So faith plus obedience is legalism. If you're justified by faith plus obedience, that's the Roman Catholic church. That's the church of Christ. That's the Mormon church. Now faith without obedience, that's antinomianism, right? That's the universalism. That's the free grace movement that's in the church. That's maybe Andy Stanley. Who's like, we don't need the law. Um, And then you have faith that produces works or faith that produces obedience. That's Christianity, right? So you have the first one is faith plus obedience is legalism. Faith without obedience is antinomianism. And faith that produces obedience is Christianity. And that's really the distinctions that are trying to be made here. Paul is emphasizing the difference between Judaism's legalism and antinomianism's licentiousness. The idea that you could just go and live how you want because you're freely justified. Now, as we know, uh, his central point in the past several verses is our identity in Christ will produce activity for Christ. Our identity in Christ will produce activity for Christ. And these activities we know don't save us. They do not keep us saved Uh, These activities are the natural outworking of the Holy Spirit in the life of a a believer who has been regenerated by faith. So these are people, again, who have been set free from what? Well, from the reigning and ruling influence of sin. They've been set free from the condemning power of sin. And these people have been set free because of Christ who has what? He's conquered the guilt of our sin on the cross through the sacrificial death and physical resurrection. And as a result, what happens to us? We become followers in that pattern. 
right? We have also conquered the guilt of sin and expect to follow him in a future physical resurrection in Christ. And so he's showing that union, that doctrine of union between Christ and his people. And so in scripture, there's sometimes a doctrine that's called to situational succession. It's a pretty technical term. It's that those who are in Christ will follow the situational position of Christ. Those who are in Christ will essentially follow in succession that which is of Christ will be true of his church. And so if Christ was justified before the law, then we will be justified before the law. And if Christ was resurrected, then we will be resurrected. There's again a situational succession that's occurring there. And this is actually why Christ is referred to as the firstborn or the first fruits of many brethren. And what I'm trying to say there is that he's not the only born. He's not the only uh, fruits of the harvest. No, he's the first fruits. We become the next born. We become the next fruits. It is still producing life. There is still a reproductive power in Christ that we're seeing around the world. There is still uh, more harvest to come uh, in the proclamation of the gospel and the great commission. And so Christ is the seed and we are the harvest and uh, Christ is the vine and we are the branches. And there is this, again, reproductive power. John 12, 24 says, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, speaking of himself, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And so Jesus was the seed that went into the ground and is now bearing much fruit through the, the conversion of many people and the fruitfulness of the church. And so, uh, again, this is, I think, what Paul is trying to communicate. And I'm still in my introduction here. But what Christ has accomplished, we by faith have received. And as a result, we've been able to walk as those who have died to sin. We've been separated from the condemning power of sin because Christ has conquered the power of sin. We've been able to walk as those who are not subject to the lusts of the flesh because we've been given the power of Christ and the Holy Spirit in us to bring us conviction to walk in a pure and holy life. We've been able to accomplish all these things because of two things, God's grace in Christ and our justified status before the law. Those are the two things that allow us to walk this way is God's grace and our justified status before the law. It gives us ultimate freedom. So today in verses 15 through 19, Paul warns professing Christians that if we voluntarily or habitually sin because of our gracious status before the law, uh, it becomes evidence that our profession is counterfeit, that we're actually not saved because it's showing that we're actually obeying another master that is not Christ. And so we're going to see that in these verses here. So we're going to read 15. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or obedience resulting in righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. 
I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. All right, let's look at verse 15. What then? Shall we sin that we are not under the law, but under grace? May it never be. So Paul is asking a parallel question. You have to know what Paul is doing. Look at verses one and two here in chapter six. Okay, Paul is asking a parallel question to the question that was asked in verses one and two. And there's an important distinction made between these two questions. The first question in verses one through two is focusing on abusing grace as a way to permit Christians to continue to live basically as they did before Christ. Don't abuse the grace. And as we know, again, Paul says, no way, don't live this way. Um, And he gives a 12 verse explanation for why this behavior should no longer occur because it is not our identity. That was the whole purpose there. Don't live this way, that's not who you are. Now the question here in verse 15, it's the same issue from another angle. And Paul is focusing on the accusation again of people not abusing grace, but here he's talking about abusing our justified status before the law. So it's again the same thing, not looking at it from grace, but looking at it from over here, from our status before the law as justified. And he doesn't want us to think that just because you're justified, it permits you to sin. So in one angle, you're abusing grace, and the other angle, you're abusing your status as justified before the law. And so between verses one and two and verse 15, he's rejecting both issues or excuses for sinfulness. There is no reason under the gospel of grace where you should feel free to sin or free to disobey the law, ever. And the abuse of grace and the abuse of freely justified status of the law None of those offer Christians the ability to just go and live in sin. Now, he's also rejecting both degrees of sinfulness. Let me explain here. So he's he's rejecting antinomianism, full-blown antinomianism. You know, just live how you did before you knew Christ. You're justified by faith. And then he's also, I would say, rejecting light licentiousness. And what I mean by that is, these sins that are little sins and that we just kind of throw off because they're, they're just little sins and we know that we're justified. He's throwing off that heart that we can just disobey a little bit and it's okay because we're justified. He's trying to do away with all of it, to have a reverent posture before the law. Now in verse 16, Paul makes a very important shift and this is gonna be what this entire sermon is about. So we go from the concept of identity informing activity. That's what the last several sermons have been about. Identity informing activity. Here, there is a shift to obedience reflects ownership. Okay? Obedience reflects ownership. That is like the banner that flies over this passage of scripture. So verse 16, it says, do you not know? that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. So there's no neutrality in scripture. It doesn't exist. 
You are either a slave to sin and the kingdom of Satan or a slave to righteousness in the kingdom of Christ. That's your options. I often tell people when they get in the conversation about human will, I say, well, we have a will, but it's never free. It's either enslaved to sin or enslaved to Christ. You have no neutral space where your will, which in philosophy is your highest desire. Your highest desire is either going to be for sin or it's going to be for Christ. And when you're dead in trespasses and sins, it's going to be for the flesh and for the lust of the flesh. And when you're new in Christ, it's going to be for Christ and the things of the kingdom of God. And so there is no neutrality of human will. Now the pagan, whether they want to admit it or not, is spiritually dead and a slave to sin and to self. Even their good works are sinful to God. Even when a pagan who doesn't know God goes and donates his money to the Red Cross or to some homeless shelter, they're doing so without faith to the glory of self and for self-exaltation. And we know in Isaiah 64, 6, uh, God says, all of our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. Even the things that are good, if done outside of faith in Christ, are actually sinful because they're not done in faith to the glory of Christ. This is why Romans 14, 23 says, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And so born again believers actually have the ability to do things that are truly righteous because we've done them to the glory of Christ in faith. Now, this doesn't mean that, again, that Christians are without sin. We do sinful things, but we do have the ability to do things from a right heart to the glory of Christ in faith. And so the point that Paul is trying to make here is that sin is no longer the Christian's master. You once had a master that was sin. It is no longer your master. And the point that he's trying to communicate is that if you as a Christian willingly and habitually sin and do so without conviction, your obedience reflects your ownership. Your obedience reflects your ownership. You are not a slave to Christ, but a slave to Satan. This is essentially what's being said here, is that if you are constantly sinning and you're constantly walking in a habitual, patternistic, thematic, historical issues of sin, it's because you're owned by it. You're not owned by Christ. You're owned by Satan. And, and that is really what needs to be made clear here. First John 3, 4 through 10. Why don't you guys turn there? It says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take sins away, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. 
And so, I'll stop right there. I want you guys to think about this for a second. It's a very helpful passage of scripture when you're dealing with somebody who thinks they're saved, but is evidently owned not by Christ, but by sin. And so the ownership of Christ, even when a person has a comprehension of superabundant grace and a justified status before the law, uh, again, it doesn't permit us to have willful, habitual, sinful lives. If you do have that sinful life, it's because you're not owned by Christ. And this is why people that call themselves Christian, again, that have these long-standing issues, uh, and I'm talking, again, patternistic, addictive, bondage-like sins. Think about alcoholism, substance abuse, drug use, pornography, pathological lying, suicidal tendencies, violence. Um, When you see these people, they are revealing their ownership. When someone says that they're, you know, uh, they can't stop looking at that stuff on the internet or they can't stop drinking, uh, it's evidence that they're in bondage to that type of sin. And again, we all as Christians are going to fall short. We're, we're going to at times have, have setbacks. We're going to backslide. But the difference between the Christian and the person who's not owned by Christ is that the Holy Spirit convicts us and we can't keep doing that sinful thing. You can't. I've been there. I've tried to run back to the old life to find value in the grave. And you're there for a day or two. And then the Holy Spirit's conviction is so intense that you repent because God keeps us and God draws us up to himself and God disciplines us. It's evidence that we are his. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 16 through 20, which we just read, you will know them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. You will recognize them by their fruits. Over and over again, Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Now, this isn't a call to legalism. This is the ones who are Christ will demonstrate the genuineness of their status with Christ by their obedience. See those saved people over there? The ones who obey, they love me. Or see those people who love me, watch them obey. That's what's being said there. And again, obedience reflects ownership. And this is a very helpful concept for people in the church who think they're saved, but clearly have a life in bondage to another master. But again, obedience reflects ownership. And Paul goes into praise in verses 17 through 19. It says, but thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart, which is the place of true obedience. And it says, to that form of teaching to which you were committed, that's the gospel, and having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh, speaking to the illustration of slavery. 
For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. Okay, Christians have had a change of ownership. Christians have had a change of ownership. You have to see that. Colossians 1.13, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. In Christ, we have been adopted. We've been adopted. Ephesians 1.5 says, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. John 1.12 says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. 1 John 3, 1 says, see what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God and so we are. Even Jesus instructs us to pray to God, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. R.C. Sproul in this, uh, I was reading Truths We Confess this week and he said this, it was really fascinating. He says, one German scholar studied the concept of fatherhood in Judaism. He described how children of the Jews were taught to memorize several appropriate titles that they might use addressing God in prayer. Noticeably absent from the list was father. He could not find a Jewish person in any extent of literature who addressed God directly as father until the 10th century AD. It was unthinkable in Judaism that anyone would have the audacity to address God in such a familiar fashion. Yet in the New Testament, every prayer that comes from us from the lips of Jesus, except for one, begins with Jesus addressing God as Father. The practice provoked the hostility of Jesus' contemporaries to anger. We have this incredible right through faith to come to God as Father. We don't recognize how beautiful that is because we've never been restrained from using that title. But it's, an, it's a title of endearment and of adoption and of status and of ownership. Paul then closes up in the section in verse 19 with a similar command to what we see in verse 14. If you're looking at chapter six, he says, for just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness resulting in sanctification. So in the same way that identity was to drive activity, ownership is to drive obedience. So when you realize your identity and your master, you produce the appropriate works of obedience from the correct heart. That's what Paul is trying to get across here. But Paul also makes an interesting statement. Look down here. He shows how slavery to sin results in multiplied sinfulness. And that same formula of multiplication or expansion can be experienced in our slavery to righteousness, resulting in further sanctification. Now, in other words, the same way that a weed grows is the same way that a tree grows, right? If the sin is weeds, trees grow the same way as well. And so a life of sin leads to greater and greater darkness. And a life of obedience leads to greater and greater light. And so this is important. And I want you guys to really grasp what I'm saying here. Obedience is not some 
empty action without a real tangible benefit for your life. It actually does something. Christian obedience from the heart leads to what? Well, to greater sanctification, to greater holiness, to to greater obedience. And what does a life of greater holiness lead to? Well, to less pain and less suffering and less regret and sorrow. And then more than that, what does a life of holiness lead to on the other side? Well, to greater joy and to more blessings and to more peace. And so Paul is communicating here that we have sin that just leads downhill to death and that obedience actually benefits us. Like we are the beneficiaries of obedience. Telling your kids to obey is not just for your benefit or for the benefit of God. It's no, it's it's for their benefit. It actually produces greater holiness and sanctification that leads to more peace and joy and less sorrow and suffering. And so ultimately, there's no such thing as a stagnant Christian life. Every decision you make will either reflect your identity and ownership in Christ, or it'll testify against your identity and ownership in Christ. Okay, it'll either move you toward a life of lawlessness, or it'll move you toward a life of light. Every decision is honoring one master. Now we know that we're in Christ, but we can still be in Christ and sin. We're saints who sin. You know, uh, Thomas Watson's quote, in the born-again believer, sin remains, but in the born-again believer, sin will not reign. It will not rule. And so the question you have to ask yourself is, are you demonstrating greater and greater obedience or a life of greater and greater lawlessness? Are you becoming more and more sanctified at the heart or more and more bitter against the law of God? Are you convicted by what seemed harmless years ago because you're being sanctified? Or are you finding comfort in what you thought to be sinful? I've turned on movies that we watched when we first got married and we think, this is going to be a great thing. We're going to relive this wonderful movie that we used to love. And you turn it on and you're like, my goodness, I can't believe I used to think this was okay. And it's evidence that you have been sanctified. But if you find yourself being comfortable in things that you used to think were sinful, that's scary. And these are vital examinations and distinctions that you need to perform on yourself. Is my obedience leading to greater and greater holiness? Or am I actually making more excuses to sin and to not follow the law of God? Am I finding opportunities of licentiousness? Ultimately, the Holy Spirit, by the hand of Paul, is telling us this. If you're in Christ, act like it. And if you're owned by God, obey like it. Show the world the fruit of the master that owns you. That's the message of this passage of Scripture. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for the clarity that you have given us in this passage of Scripture. Lord, that we are identified with Christ, that we have an identity in faith by grace, and that we are to act like it. Lord, and we thank you also for the law. And Lord, for the ownership that you have bought us at a price and that we are 
servants and slaves joyfully, lovingly to your ways. Lord, we ask that you would help us act like it and obey like it. Lord, that you would convict our hearts that we would see further and further obedience leading to greater sanctification. And Lord, even in the little things, Lord, that there's any licentiousness in our heart, Lord, that you would eradicate that, that this congregation will be holier in 10 years. Lord, we ask that you would work those things in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon. For more information about Pastor Dale Partridge or Kingsway Bible Church, visit kingswaybible.org.